0: With me today is Steve Kundert from CBRE. Thanks for coming on the Brenneman Blueprint. Thank you for having me. Listen, everybody. We all know that real estate is the most proven way to build wealth. But why isn't everyone wealthy from real estate then? It's hard to know where to start and most of the education out there is just complete trash and you end up investing your money on a series of courses instead of in real estate. That's not how this podcast works. We give you the blueprint to successful real estate investing and bring on guests actually willing to share their secrets. I started my real estate investing journey as a freshman in college when I bought my first duplex and have been in the trenches doing deals ever since. And today, I now own hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. On this podcast, you will learn what you actually need to know to be a successful active or passive real estate investor. And we'll offer our takes on what's happening today so you can navigate this market and build wealth. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Brenneman Blueprint. Awesome. Well, yeah. Steve's been on the podcast before. He's a debt and equity intermediary, like I had said. I think last time you were on, you were up to twelve billion dollars of debt originated. That was like a year ago. You still at twelve billion, or where are we? We're at? about twelve and a half billion at this point. Okay, nice. That's a good. That's a good year. So yeah, and Steve has access to all types of financing: Fannie, Freddie, HUD, CMBS, LifeCo, banks, debt funds, everything. So wanted to get him on again. Um, too should mention that if you wanted to hear like Steve's background or this, we did a deep dive for like an hour and a half on all those different debt product, uh, product types and just kind of everything you'd want to know about each one. So if you want to hear that, check out episode, uh, six. So I think we didn't really leave any like stone unturned there. Um, so, but I, we're going to kind of skip over all that and just kind of go with like what's happening today. So, uh, I think, uh, a lot's happened since, you know, the end of 2021 from, uh, when you were on last. So let's maybe if you want to just kind of update everybody, if they're not doing this every day, what sort of happened the last you know year or so? Well, the biggest change
1: I think for anyone who's even paying half attention realizes this is that the underlying indices have gone up uh, quite a bit, right? So when I was on, I believe it was, it was March of last year. Uh, The U.S., uh, the Treasury, the 10-year Treasury, was yielding about 2.5%. Today, it's over 100 basis points above that. It's about 382 as of this morning. The five-year Treasury, which was about 240, 2.4%, that's now 4%. Uh, which also note the inversion of the 5 and the 10-year, which we can get into a little bit. And then you look at the index for floaty rate money, which is SOFR. SOFR at the time was 30 basis points. Today, it's 4.5%. So the short-term SOFR, which is the CME 30-day SOFR, it is now outside of both the 10-year and the 5-year treasury. And because of, especially with those uh, those short-term bridge products, that has made the cost of borrowing almost double, if not in some cases, 150% more expensive than this time last year, which once you filter through on a levered return basis, what that means, it it has impacted the investment sales market as well as the discretionary
0: refi market, which again, we can get into in a little bit here. Yeah, where I think to dive into what's happened with SOFR then like, yeah, that if you bought a apartment deal and in most markets, if there's no debt in it, they would make you know, four to six percent uh, yield, so just in terms of the cash flow divided by your purchase price. And then, yeah, you're all in interest rate on those floating rate things. It went from being, you know, uh, basically like nothing plus maybe a spread of 350, you know, three and a half percent, so you're all in rates like three and a half, to now that indices went to four something, and then now you're all in rate, you know, you're pushing eight. That's exactly so. right, And and SOFR for a long time was was next to nothing.
1: As I mentioned a year ago, it was about thirty bips. If you go back ninety days before that, it was it was ten bips, and now the, the spreads really across the board haven't changed all that much. They've gone out a little bit. Uh, you know, to your I think you referenced to your point, it's you know a generic spread for full leverage institutional bridge borrowing is three. And a half to four percent, you know, maybe four and a quarter, depending on your your ultimate loan to cost. But because of that underlying index, you're now you're eight percent plus. Which eight percent debt going back three years ago? That was hard money. Today, that's that's core plus multifamily borrowing.
0: Yeah, right. And and so I think if we, you know, if you think about then all these people who would have bought a deal where it was you know yielding between a three and a six percent, uh, you know, type thing like those are all upside down from a cash flow standpoint right now, if you didn't buy a rate cap or, you know, you didn't have a fixed rate product. So that's made, you know, it's made it really challenging. And then I think for, you know, like before we started, I was, we were talking about the last time we bought a property and like the last big deal we did was, you know, a year ago now. And then, uh, we bought the five deals last year at at the very tail end of 2021. You know, thankfully four out of the five were fixed rate loans. You know, we have one, Floating rate one, and we bought an interest rate cap, so we're not mm-hmm. uh, getting crushed because we bought it where it was a pretty low strike uh, compared to where you know we saw some people buy them, or or later in the year be buying strikes that were you know four percent, and then their spread spreads also too. Maybe it's worth noting at some point last year they really did blow out when all the warehouse lines were getting pulled or put on pause with the debt funds. So then, I mean, I saw deals getting set up where it was like they're buying a four cap deal. They're gonna make it like a five cap uh, with their value add, five percent unlevered yield on cost, and they and they're borrowing at basically eight and a half, just kind of assuming well, this rate'll drop, things will kind of come back to normal by the time we're done with our plan so if you were buying at the tail end of last year, you're taking a lot of you know is a crazy time to be buying a property in a way' because you're upside down potentially on your debt, depending on the product type I mean that would be more for. Nicer multifamily or value add multifamily.
1: Yeah. The the thesis that you could buy, to your point, at a at a four and turn it into a five because of both cap rate compression in the market and rent growth, that needs to be examined pretty closely in today's world because you are not I don't want to say universally, but for the most part that that rent growth trend has not continued, especially in some of the larger growth markets, like a Phoenix or or a Salt Lake or an Austin, where you were having that, that 10, 15 plus percent year over year rent growth that has leveled off or even, even come in a little bit. So if you were modeling your returns based on trended rents, you're getting pretty squeezed on those returns. Now, the underlying cost of debt, again, to your point, thankfully in the through 2022, uh, 2021, the bridge lenders were requiring caps on SOFR. And at the time it was a 2%, 2.5% strike, which at the time no one really thought we'd even hit. All those caps are in the money right now. So that is, that is a saving grace for a lot of those investors. But what we are now getting to the point is that original term, whether it be 24 or 36 months, which is, which is the standard bridge term, those loans are maturing. And in a lot of cases, because of that lack of rent growth, you're not hitting the metrics to hit your options. So now that's going to be creating a lot of both disruption in the market, but also opportunity as uh, both investors on the equity side and investors on the debt side are looking at all those transactions that, that don't pencil in today's world.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So what are you, yeah, cause I've been hearing a ton about that where you have all these loans that'll be coming due they can't refi their existing balance and it's going to be this big potentially buying opportunity. Uh, What have you been, have you heard anything from the investment sales brokers or deals you've saw? Like, does it seem like any opportunities would actually be coming? Because these people could just opt to uh, add more money to the deal or to like, uh, or we could get into like other strategies where there's other options they could have to potentially to kind of kick it down the road a little bit the
1: biggest opportunity that we are seeing right now is in the pref equity space because of, I mean, the, the market fundamentals are still, are still strong. So it, for, in, in the most case or most cases, the, the deals that are underwater are only underwater from a debt perspective. They're not underwater from, from an equity perspective. There are still real cash in those deals. So while we're not, and because of that, we're not seeing a really in the investment sales market yet, because that, if you had a deal that you bought, say, three years ago, and it's in from a value perspective, uh, you need to recap your your loan that's that's maturing. Those deals aren't being marketed yet. I think we'll eventually get there, but we're probably a good twelve months away from seeing those. What we are seeing in response to that debt maturity is is the pref equity. There are a number of funds that are being raised from from equity sources or excuse me debt sources that, Historically, didn't have a pref equity fund that are that now do, to come in with that, and I don't want to quite say rescue capital, but that opportunistic capital to come in and and right size the ship, more so than than new equity funds because that that is going to trail a little bit behind the market but in terms of new pref equity coming in if you're in the middle of a of a rehab that either needs capital to get your extension or to finish the work or whatever the case may be there is a real opportunity with corresponding yield coming from those pref equity funds
0: then why don't for people who haven't heard of pref equity before or you know why don't you walk us through how would that work on a on a refi So when if you're looking for a refinance you have a capital event
1: due to a maturity uh we're not seeing it so much on the acquisition side this is this is really for the most part on on refinances due to to loan maturities a sponsor is in need of equity because to either finish finish their their project or to pay off their their in-place balance they either need to write a check themselves which a lot of cases they can't do or sell the asset and and as i was saying before there's still real, real cash in this deal, so they're not ready to quite give up that project yet. So what they're doing is they're turning to PREF equity. PREF equity uh, comes in, if you look at the capital stack, it's senior debt, it's mezz, PREF equity, and then common equity. Debt, as we all know, it's the, it's the senior position. It'll, it'll go up on a, on a loan-to-cost basis. In today's world, it's 65%, but it could go up to 75%, 80%, 82% in terms of loan-to-cost. Uh, that is a, a straight coupon um, and that's, it's, it's a mortgage. Your m- mezz piece is similar to debt in that it, it comes in and it's subordinate to the senior, won't go quite as high in the capital stack and typically that is also just a coupon. When you get into PREF equity, they are solving for a return more so than a coupon. So if, if you have a, whatever the, the the metric is, let's just say it's a 15% return on that on that cost of capital, they can structure that both on a current pay, uh, also if paid through accrual or on the residual. So it, it, it is true equity where you are, uh, your return possibilities are in some cases, double or triple what that senior debt is yielding. And you have rights to take over the project yourself, uh, if, you, if the things continue to go sideways. Uh, and so in that case, you have the opportunity to come in at a lower basis while still having a, a higher current return. Uh, above that is common equity, which is the first loss position, and that is where the sponsorship money comes in. Uh, so what we are seeing is sponsors going out looking for that PREF equity, someone to come in and partner with them. And I say partner because you are truly part of the, the equity structure. They have major decision rights, but typically not everyday operational rights. They could, again, if, 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 if you hit certain uh, metric thresholds as far as occupancy or, or, or cash flow or whatever, whatever that might be. Uh, and it allows the the debt likes that because you typically these are typically institutionally based funds so you have deep pockets that are coming in with sponsorship to keep keep the the ship right side up now there are nuances with lender approval rights and inner creditors etc but to have that influx of equity especially on larger institutional deals the senior lender is much more inclined to allow an an ex uh, exercising of that extension option if you now have fresh equity coming in which as a sponsor that might be a little cash constrained right now given what's been happening over the past 12 months is a nice option for them as well
0: okay nice yeah let me make sure just to try to explain it a different way too where so let's say you had bought a deal three years ago you took out a 20 million dollar loan at the time but today with today's high interest rates it's sizing to 16 million dollars and for your refinance and let's say if it was yeah a debt fund loan where you have these extension options built in but you're not meeting the required criteria to get your extension and then you you or your partnership you don't have the four million to come up with like what are your options like it's a bad time to sell because the next buyer will be having this high interest rate loan and maybe you didn't finish your business plan yet so then that's where like the prep equity would come in What's different with prep equity is they're coming actually into your LLC is my understanding. I haven't done one, but that's not, it's, it's, it's not like a loan where there's going to be a mortgage on the property. They're actually in the LLC with you. Is that, that they had, they have equity uh,
1: considerations. So they, uh, as I mentioned, you are solving for a both a current and a residual return to hit whatever that number is on the back end, but they have equity rights. So if things continue to go sideways, whether because of macro market or because of property level, they have the right to come in and actually be the sponsor. And there, is a, there is a scenario in which the, the common equity sponsor can be wiped out completely, and now you have the PREF equity, which is the de
0: facto owner. Yeah, that's, um, that's where I was going to go with that because I, my understanding was they're already in the LLC with you, so then it's kind of easy to kick you out because they're already in it. That's exactly what I right. Thought.
1: Which is why that underwriting of that pref equity contribution, from a senior lender standpoint, is so important because that is, I mean, that could be your new your new
0: sponsor. Yeah. That could be who is owning the property. And then, are you seeing senior lenders raising pref equity funds? I mean, I'm sure we are. Like every. Uh, the report back from NMHC was everyone wants to do pref equity it was basically the main thing I heard that and people were actually pretty optimistic. About yeah, everything.
1: the uh, the the life company lenders, for the most part, are not. I mean, you do have some that have separate pockets of money that are raising pref equity, uh, but the the debt funds and even some of the equity shops, because if you look at to your uh, one of your earlier points. The disconnect in the market right now between buyers and sellers is still is there's a pretty wide gap, so a lot of the equity shops are thinking, well, I can go out and and buy a property, or I can invest in pref equity and still get a a pretty decent return in addition to having the possibility of getting that that asset for a reduced basis if you get to a situation where you kick out common equity sponsorship.
0: Yeah, or even just looking at the risk reward, where I think you know, like a lot of the deals we underwrite today, they might make like a twelve, thirteen IRR, and then we end up passing on it. Mm-hmm. And that, most of the time, I think like, wow, the people who are doing pref equity, that's what they were asking a, a year ago. We had we had um, a couple of groups explain it, like pitch it to us. We didn't we didn't pull the trigger on using it, mm-hmm. but I would assume like the yields they're targeting are probably at least twelve now, given the. How dislocated the market is. Maybe it's twelve percent and up. Absolutely. So then, when I do think about that, when I'm like, here's another twelve percent deal we're not doing, mm-hmm. where it's like, wow, you could just be uh, lending pref and not even thinking about getting the property back. Like, just think you're protected behind still all this equity that the sponsor doesn't want to lose, and you're getting like a pretty insulated twelve. Like that sounds pretty, pretty good. So I know why they're they're raising money for it. I mean, if it's there, that's going to be a nice opportunity from a risk reward standpoint. And that reason
1: is one of the contributing factors why there is not a lot of transactions right now in terms of of, of true arms length sales. Because you look at the opportunity for PREF equity to get that type of yield. You look at the opportunity for a portfolio manager for a large institutional fund to invest in corporate bonds that are yielding, you know, four or five plus percent. You look at high net worth individuals that can now go out and get a, uh, a, a savings account for, for four and a quarter percent. You look at that relative to the yields that we're seeing in real estate and a lot of investors are taking a long pause as far as in terms of that risk adjusted basis does it make sense to go into cre right now and now that's not true with funds if you raised a fund you have a mandate to get out capital or if you have a a an exchange because you did sell something opportunistically you have 1031 exchange exactly that's that's what's driving the acquisitions right now it's not necessarily uh opportunistic buys from uh from
0: high net worth individuals or from you know private equity shops yeah and i think also i mean there haven't been a lot of let's say sales that seem heavily discounted yet just because it's uh we're talking about these properties being sort of underwater from like uh your interest rate uh, that the property's yielding to your debt but everyone still has term left for the most part mm-hmm. and i guess if you don't have term let's say it's you know 2023 now and you bought the property in 2022, I mean, most markets had huge rent growth at the tail end of 2020, all 2021. So those those are not as distressed because they had such great property performance where, I mean, if you owned anything like in the Sunbelt, I mean, your NOI is probably up 20, 30 percent. So then you're you're okay. The deals that are going to be in trouble are the ones that, let's say, got all bought mid 2022 to your point from way earlier. Rent, rent growth stopped about then like mm-hmm. the t12 rent growth in phoenix according to real page right now this is like i think february 2022 to february 2023 ish it was like one percent so it and then if you think about it was you know probably up a lot at those you know those first few months of that year and then leveled off and, and dropped some so you know if you bought at you know let's say last summer you have had negative rent growth your interest rate, you know, um, you were thinking maybe, okay, the sofa, sofa will stop around here around two and I'll buy this cap and at four. And then your interest rate shot up to eight and a half. And now you're like, those will be the deals that are in trouble, but they're not termed out on that loan for another two and a half years, let's say. So then they're, um, they still have time to raise more money or have interest rates fall or, you know, renovate the property, get the rents up. So that's, that's too why I think we haven't seen it. It's just, like when your loan maturity is extremely important and we're seeing that now? It's the
1: loan maturity as well as the structuring of the loan. So any of those deals generically that you just referenced, they are most likely in some sort of cash management situation. Whether it's a true cash management of sweeping cash or uh, they're on at the very least a watch list, there is something going on property level that was structured into those loan docs so that might be in a you know what we call a little e event to default but not a big e event default meaning that they might be in technical default in the loan docs but the the lender and the borrower are working through solutions to get there big e event of default is I'm taking back your keys and most lenders don't want to do that they will try to figure out a way to work around it uh, so to to your point, on terms of a maturity, big e event of default, we're still a couple of years away from those loans that were originated over the past twenty four months. And the loans that are maturing now, there are certainly a number of loans that are troubled. But you know as you know, for the most part, you make your money on the buy. And if you did buy at the appropriate basis, you are still above water in terms of your equity, which gets back to now, if you do need a solution and it doesn't size to a debt takeout, you have those pref equity funds that come in and and help you out.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think what, uh, so I think we talked about a bit, but any other thoughts for somebody who then let's say they need to refinance today? I think we kind of talked about pref equity, but what other considerations would somebody, uh, would, would somebody have, would you say? I think the, the, Biggest
1: analysis that you need to do is what is your property today? What does your property look like tomorrow, whenever tomorrow might be, in terms of a of a mark to market relative to your rents? Let's let's be realistic as far as what to expect on, on on your NOI. Now when you're when you're sizing a any bridge loan for the most part, especially with any kind with with a heavy lift where you're clearing people out and then leasing it back up lenders for the most part will not underwrite trended rents. And that's also helping out where we are in the market right now. Cause even though that sponsor might be underwriting that 10, 15% increase in rents, which is great for the equity, the debt does not. So they're looking at what what are market rents today? And, and they will look in the context of a renovated versus unrenovated unit. But what is if I had a renovated unit that was being delivered today? What is the rent? That is what they're going to underwrite for the takeout. Uh, so I think that as you're evaluating your refinance, you need to you really look at your rent role. What is it, this property yielding in terms of cash flow today? And then go out and look at the the spectrum of lenders. Who is that best lender? What is your goal? Are you are you content to put it away long term? Do you need another bridge loan either to bridge to a capital event or to finish any kind of project? Uh, And and really try to understand how your property looks in the
0: context of the larger market. Interesting. And so let's say, though, you still have some, I guess what you're talking about where they won't trend rents, you're talking about for uh, like all lenders, I guess, at this point, right? For or, the
1: most part, yes, and that's always been the case.
0: Yeah, and I think one but what I, one thing I wanted to dive in on is, let's say you have a, let's say it's an apartment deal or a commercial deal you bought and you haven't finished your value add yet fully. Like one strategy that I have in my mind, kind of in my back pocket, if you will, on this deal we did with the debt fund is let's say we're not fully done with our business plan yet and we want to refinance. Well, then we will, we'd start going to lenders who will, they won't look at trended rents but they'll look at okay you're still executing your renovation and they would size a uh, another um, it's not a permanent loan and just another like three or five year loan but based on when you are done with your renovation so just kind of your typical value-add deal uh, type value-add loan that you could get from a bank or a debt fund Uh, so that's what I thought would be our next move where it's you're going either debt fund to debt fund, where now it's a value add, but it's like round two with it, Mm -hmm. or you're going debt fund to bank. And then, um, because they don't, yeah, they're not looking at trended rents. We can't say like, we'll grow our way out of it. Don't worry. But let's say you bought a 100 unit property. You renovated, you know, 70% of the units. And at that point, you thought you're probably going to sell it as like a little more meat on the bone kind of value add to the next group. But now you're, you're the next group. Like you need to renew your loan, finish. And then what you'd be pitching to the lender is, we're gonna finish those remaining 30% of the units. And then on this next turn of the units, we're really gonna get our rent pops. Because before it was a construction zone, we didn't finish our pool renovation. You know, we was kinda, um, wasn't like fully there. So people were renting the renovated units, but the mm-hmm. common areas, the amenities weren't done. So I think that would be a tip for folks where if you're in that scenario and you, you could go to, let's say in that made up example where, that I had before, where you would maybe need to inject four million of equity into the thing But if you explain how you can get it, uh, to size out on today's rents at 20 million, again, maybe get a lender to go along with that.
1: I think that's a sound strategy, but we do need to make sure that as you underwrite that execution to pay attention to what that Delta is between fully renovated and stabilized, meaning construction done rents and the rents that you have in place right now, because a lot of lenders, and understandably so, will underwrite renovated rents in place as renovated rents, regardless of what else is going on at the property. While you can make the argument that you know, the pool's not done or this building over here was under construction, so we're, we're gonna pop rents another two, dollars $300 a unit, whatever the number is. It's very easy for, for that lender to say, well, these are renovated units, this is the rent you're getting, that's what I'm gonna project for everything. So that is, a, that is definitely a nuanced approach that you, you have to pay close attention to how you present to the lenders. Some will get that, some will not. Okay, so I
0: have some units proven out.
1: If you, in a perfect world, you, yeah. have, you have a handful of units that have already achieved those rents. Now that's not always possible, but that makes it a lot easier to go out and
0: say, this is when we're fully done, this is this is the rents we're going to expect. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I've been telling people it's, it's uh, we're in a glass half empty world right now. So like, you know, a year ago, you, you probably, who knows if you even needed those proven out, you know, where you could have just said down the street, around the corner, they're getting it, we will too. And everyone had, you know, uh, felt like a billion dollar debt fund to, uh, behind on what they want to get out mm-hmm. and you would have got it. But now it's the opposite where it's, you know, Okay. Well, yeah, you only rented those for 1550. I don't think you can get 1650 like you're saying yet. Exactly so, right. Yeah, I get it. No, that makes sense. So then, okay, that's, this is a lot on deals that are already, uh, you know, been bought the last three years. Um, let's jump to then, let's say stuff like you want to buy something today. What, what does the landscape look like on permanent deals today? The landscape is still dominated for,
1: for leverage deals by the agencies. Uh, so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, in terms of fixed rate permanent products, the uh, the the agencies this year have been allocated of uh, for each seventy five billion dollars for both uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is down over their allocation for last year, which was seventy eight billion dollars for each agency. So it's a whatever that is a four percent decrease in uh, in targeted originations and. Uh, their comment uh, of to justify that decrease is it's it's a reflection of the contraction of new multifamily originations because of all the various factors that that we've been we've been talking about here. Now, spreads are spreads themselves are, are still attractive. Uh, I uh, signed up a deal, on Friday where the spread came in at 141 basis points. That was, that was an affordable focus deal. It was 100% mission driven through Fannie. And um, again, just to, to refresh you and your audience, the, the mission of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is to provide affordable housing to the country. Now that, that doesn't mean that they won't lend on class A core $5 a foot type rent buildings. But what it does mean is that if you have a, a building that meets their affordability requirements relative to larger area, then you will get a significant discount on pricing. So you have a, in that instance, it was a, a 65% loan, a 140 spread. So you're looking at a cost of capital of low fives, low 5%. Now the, the treasury is up significantly over 30 days ago so when we started this process it was actually a, a coupon in the forest which we haven't seen a coupon on the forest in a while yeah uh, so that was, that was that was a nice uh, uh, that was a nice number to see on there as I mentioned we're back into the fives now but um, you look at spreads for affordable deals mission driven deals of 140 150 then upwards of pushing high 100s. Maybe 200 if you're pricing in in prepayment flexibility for non-mission-driven deals for for five, seven, 10 ten-year money. That is still the market leader to both push leverage and available IO. The agencies will still continue to lend partial term at you know, upwards of 70 plus percent, full term IO at 65 percent. Uh, to if you have a an institutional quality multifamily deal and you require lower leverage. The life companies are also going down into that 140 type spread. Now that's for lower leverage. And you're solving for a you know nine plus percent debt yield. Uh to get higher leverage, that's when they start to tail off. So in terms of being competitive in terms of price, At lower leverage, you do have both the life companies and and the agencies competing against each other. Once you get to higher leverage, it's, it's really just the agencies and for CMBS borrowing for any type of higher leverage mm-hmm. it still doesn't make sense because of the way the rating agencies have to hit the cash flow and you're not going to do CMBS for lower leverage if you have a life company option so it's really it's really those two main sources of capital agencies life companies for uh, for lower leverage agencies for high leverage
0: yeah it makes sense and i've even been seeing and this is on permanent financing we're talking about now mm-hmm. and i've even been seeing people doing the freddie and fannie floating right just on acquisition renovation deals where they they're buying their interest rate cap they're um and they're going to do their business plan and then plan on refinancing at the end the
1: cost of that capital is extremely attractive right now the downfall for that program is that because of the way they have to size the exit it winds up pushing down your leverage quite a bit now if you have the equity to to come in at 40% 40% or, or whatever the, the number winds up being, it's usually around there. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, but b- above that, the numbers typically don't make sense. But again, because of that cost of capital, I mean, you're absolutely right. We are seeing a lot of that, that activity.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you've, what's interesting, and so sorry to put you on the spot with this, but in the Midwest, like not a lot of people do floating rate debt. And then in the Sunbelt, this it's, it's like all they do. No one does floating rate. It's a totally different, um, almost like culture on how to approach a deal Um, where the Midwest definitely more conservative and then it's a little more steady uh, too. And everyone's thinking when, when the growth turns back on, like I want to be able to get out of this thing uh, with flexible prepay. Um, Do you know what the spreads are roughly on these floating rate loans? I mean, that's not something you end up doing a lot of, I think. um, It's, it's not
1: again, because the core of my business does tend to be Midwest. Uh, and that's, you know, I've, I've never actually thought about that geographic preference, but it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting point. Um, I haven't quoted one recently. Um, my, my gut is you're probably at a mid two hundreds type spread, uh, maybe a little inside of that. For, for max leverage, whatever that minds up being because of the, the cash flow constraint.
0: Over SOFR. Correct. Yeah, because I, I knew it was less than the debt funds and mm-hmm. that's at least where I wanted to go with it was, right, in a debt fund today, it might be three and a half to four and a half percent spread. So you're you know uh, significantly under that. Absolutely. And and that's also consistent with, with
1: the banking world as well. We're seeing spreads for transitional bank business uh, also in that low to mid 200s. Uh, whether you keep it floating or purchase some sort of derivative to to cap your exposure, uh, and the the floating rate agency business is competitive with that, uh, but it's non recourse. Um, so that is that is why between the cost of capital and then because of those recourse considerations, why it has been as popular as it has been.
0: Yeah, and then if we're talking acquisitions, like what are you seeing as uh, as like popular options then today?
1: For transitional deals, if you're pushing leverage. We are seeing a pivot back to recourse bank borrowing because of that cost of capital. That the, the debt funds, while they can push 75% leverage, again, because of that cost of capital, which we talked about is, is in some cases, you know, eight plus percent because of the, you're looking at a four, 450 spread over a four, four and a half type SOFR. That starts to get pretty expensive, even though it's an IO constant. So it is, it is a true eight and a half coupon. That is a big check to write every month, relative to where we were 12, 18 months ago. So in that point, if you start to now monetize the cost of of recourse, it starts to make a lot of sense. Now, if you have a larger deal, you start bringing into net worth and liquidity considerations, which in terms of what a what a bank will underwrite, it at some point that those minimum thresholds just get too big for a middle market investor if you're if you're looking at a bank that wants a minimum net worth equal to the loan amount or liquidity of 10 15% of the loan amount that starts to be start to be a pretty big number in addition to the fact that banks especially on larger deals over the, over the course of the past 12 months, we've seen the biggest contraction in liquidity in, in those, those middle to large money center banks. And they're looking for the most part to existing clients to deploy capital. And if it's not an existing client, they're looking for a new relationship. In some cases, asking for 10% deposits, all right? So now all of a sudden, if you're doing a $30 million loan to ask for a $3 million deposit, well, that's that's a a decent amount of money to transfer from your existing bank to a new relationship. And especially considering that in many cases that sponsor has never worked with that bank before. So not only are you having to move money, you're having to move money away from, which is probably an existing relationship that you've worked with for a long time, to a bank that you've never worked with before, only to get that, that, that new loan. That's a pretty big onerous ask, and which is why we we've, we've seen less activity in the bank world over the past you know six nine months than than uh, we have previously. In that case, they're pivoting back to the debt funds and just swallowing the pill of eight nine percent money.
0: Yeah, and I think in for those transitional properties, you'd say probably if you're listening, why would somebody take a loan from a debt fund that's a higher interest rate than this uh, Freddie floater? Let's say, or you could get from the bank, um, but the debt funds are non-recourse, and they advance those. They can, they'll advance additional loan dollars on construction. So if your plan is to acquire the property, and then renovate it, you get to a, a way higher leverage, and then that could drive returns potentially. Um, and then same thing with the bank loan. Like they'll, they'll fund construction because the negative um, with the agency loans is there are. I know there are some exceptions like this mod program that is out there, but I've never. Still yet to meet a person has used it, um, you know. So usually, they, if you're going to do an agency loan, you're going to just use that to acquire the property, and then you're funding renovations out of cash. You're, you're
1: sizing to in-place cash flow. And to your point on the mod rehab loan, there are programs through both agencies where they will advance you additional dollars once your renovation program is complete, but you do need to pay for those renovations out of equity and then you go back and realize the increased NOI Um, and at that point you are then those additional funds are subject to then current interest rates you don't have the supplemental premium that you otherwise would have if you if you check the box going in saying that you're doing a this mod rehab program and you're putting in forget the exact number. I, I believe it's a minimum of 15,000 a unit of renovation with a minimum of that 10,000 going into the units. It's somewhere around there. Uh, so that is that is an option if you're looking to lock in a larger portion of your interest rate today and then still access capital in the future. But if you are doing any sort of probably moderate and above lift on your renovation plan, you're still better off going to the debt funds who can come in and they can uh, ultimately get to a mid seventies percent loan to cost through both initial funding and then
0: hundred percent funding of your renovation dollars. Yeah. And so no, that, that all makes sense to me, but just wanted to unpack that a little bit And two, are the banks still um, you know, I had talked to someone who works at a top three or five size bank last fall and he was like, we're basically we're not making any loans, no real estate loans right now, and this was in September. And his the reason was there's a uh, a new test from the regulators, and they're hitting real estate loans harder than anything else right now. They'd rather like you get less of a penalty for making like a line of credit to a boat dealer right now, like number one. And then number two, we're getting no payoffs. You make a loan, you know, last mm-hmm. year at three and a half percent, no one's you know no one's paying that off right now and refined into a six to eight percent loan so you know then they're getting no payoffs the regulators are you know all over them on these real estate loans Um, have you have you saw that sort of loosen up from the banks or where are we at with that for the larger loans frankly no uh,
1: i have not and i mean that's exactly one of the reasons why we saw that contraction in liquidity is because of the additional reserve requirements relative to cre that uh, in addition to just liquidity. So going back to March of 2020, when we did see that initial spike in short-term borrowing costs, there were a number of larger deals that historically would have gone CMBS or to a debt fund that because of the rise in interest rates, pulled back from that market and had to go into, into the banking world. And these are larger SASB transactions. So single asset, single borrower type transactions where it's a, you know, 500, $700 million, billion dollar transactions that are, when they pivoted over to the bank, even, even a large money center bank like a Wells, if you start putting out a billion dollars in debt, well, that, that's going to trickle through everything. So what we saw is a, a season of liquidity in the large money center. From there, the the larger regional banks filled some of that large loan gap, but they got filled up pretty quick. And then those smaller regional banks filled that middle-sized regional bank, their liquidity got pulled back uh, quite a bit because of that. And what that really did between that and the capital reserve requirements, the, the, the banking market, it really did, I don't wanna say shut down, because that's an exaggeration, but it certainly did slow down quite a bit through the summer uh, of last year. Um, Ironically, the local banks and the hyper-local banks seem to be completely immune to that. And we still saw a lot of transactions in that that local banking type world. Now their both max single loan limit and their max borrower limits are significantly below the money banks, money center banks. So you have a, a $7 million loan for a local bank, is a that's a large loan. So. If, if, you have, if you're have if you a middle market investor, that sometimes was an option, sometimes wasn't. If it was an option, it's usually one and done where you can't go back and do, do multiple transactions. And now the bank was looking at that in terms of relationships and saying, well, do we really wanna go through all this, deploy that much capital, it's a big loan for us, to a borrower that we legally cannot lend to again until they pay this off. So that is uh, getting back to your question. That was what was driving the original pullback of of banking business. Fast forward to today, that is loosening up a little bit in terms of capacity to lend, but we are still seeing that banking money restricted to existing clients, almost exclusively. To, again, to bring a, a new client into a bank uh is without deposits or on a transactional basis is is very hard still in today's world
0: yeah and then but uh we also talked to you you had a quote on one of these deals we were looking at where it was a non-recourse bank loan below the freddie rate or fannie rate remember uh that
1: I wish I could say I could deliver that every time. That was a unique time because of what happened with, with agency rates, um, at that, at that exact time, because they did blow out a little bit, um, as they, as Fannie and Freddie manage their allocations, they adjust their rates to, uh, to, to moderate the, the inflow and outflow of, of, of loan quotes. Uh, but in that case, yes. So if you have the right profile of deal, good deals will always get financed. Um, It's those deals that are on the fringe of the fairway or just a little bit on the rough. That's when you start to see the pullback in in liquidity. But because of, and I will add, because of the the efficiency of the capital markets, there will always be a fund to backfill that lack of liquidity. Uh, An example of that is, uh, so my company, CBRE, uh, just rolled out as of this month a proprietary fund for short term multifamily borrowing where it's designed to do a bridge to agency. The sizing metrics are pretty attractive. It's for very little or low lift deals where it's really just uh, either in, in lease up or there's a, uh, a mark to market consideration because of underleased units where the sizing subject to a 1 0 in place constant. They will lend you up to ninety-five percent of the permanent underwriting loan. So, if you have a if you have a loan today or an asset today that you're acquiring that is under market, and it, it, let's just say it's a generically a, a twenty million dollar deal, that you will size to a, a twenty million dollar stabilized loan, they will come up to ninety-five percent of that of that number so you could go you could push upwards of of 85 percent plus in loan to cost again subject to a, a 1-0 cover and that's a that's a pretty accretive program now i won't say that's unique to to cbre there are a number of funds that have stepped up and raised programs similar to that but that's just one example but to my point on efficiency when there is a pullback in liquidity somewhere someone else will figure out how to profit from that pullback
0: what's the pricing on that that is i mean from a leverage standpoint or if that's your business plan that's it sounds like a great product uh also especially if you have a refi and you're in this scenario where you're just trying to roll over your current balance and that still have lost at least that sounds great
1: it's it's very deal dependent uh it it's it is sofa based you are required to purchase a cap equal to again one O debt coverage, and pricing can range anywhere from three fifty to five fifty, depending on the risk profile of the deal.
0: Okay, nice. Yeah, no, that's attractive. And two, one last thing, when we were talking about the banks. Like, it's very um, fluid with the your banking relationships, where we're talking, especially with these smaller banks, or probably all the banks, but where you know we did. uh, I think five, six loans last year or seven, but two refis kind of at the start of the year, I guess look like a genius in retrospect, 10 year fixed, 3.1% interest. Um, so that bank was like leading the market on the low rate at the time. And then now you talk to them and they're on the high end of the of where the banks are. You know, As of today, the the banks we were talking to, let's say they might be in the mid fives for a rate. Mm-hmm. They were in the sixes. So it's it's interesting where you need, um, you know, it's one thing. Like if you're going to the agency, you pretty much just need one person to bring your deal to them. But then with all these these different banks that want to have a relationship with you, you almost need a like a CRM to track all these banks you're going to have to talk to nowadays because it's everyone's going up and down. And then, um, you know, we did those two refis, and then another bank was quite a bit was still lower than them uh, in Phoenix. So we did all these three and a half percent interest rate five year fixed loans. Mm But then that bank, they their rates went up sooner than this other bank I did the refis with. So then we bought our most recent deal with the four and a quarter fixed rate with the first bank. You know now and now it's like they're kind of leapfrogging each right. other. Um, you know so then it's you really it's they like things change week to week with these banks. It seems like almost where you know they um, to your point also the smaller banks yeah they haven't had the regulators on them. That's where um my buddy at that bank was really curious like if this trickles through the whole system this is going to really be a huge slowdown but i don't know if they'll ever get to them probably not because they're spending all their time bothering in the big you know <laughs> the biggest five banks right now and where it gets because yeah the legal lending limit at one of those banks only nine million mm-hmm. so um you know where that but it doesn't count towards the lending limit unless it's at a certain ltv these first two weren't you know there's just a lot of like nuance but Anyways. And all that gets back to whether it's a bank or a or a life company.
1: For the most part there's nuances between the two, but you have a portfolio of assets and that portfolio manager is managing that portfolio. They're managing their exposure for not only CRE, but fixed income and, and everything else that goes into the larger portfolio. And then within CRE, they're managing their exposure to multifamily and to, and to retail and to industrial and, you know, God help them into into office. Uh, and that pricing will go up and down relative to where that allocation is. If they have a big payoff, they now have, they're under allocated in multifamily so they can get a little more aggressive. If, if they have a, a deal that, uh, they had to provide an extension. Let's just say it's in retail. Now all of a sudden they're going to pull back in retail because they don't have as much uh, much allocation now. There is always discretionary amounts within that for for existing good clients and for good deals to come in. But for the most part, that that movement in in pricing is due to them managing their portfolio. And like I said, that is both for banks and for, and for life companies as
0: well. What I want to ask you about too is tips, I guess, real quick, was on the first episode we shot, Like you had a great tip where matching your loan up with your business plan. I mean, you want to either elaborate on that or hit us with one more tip here?
1: In today's world, what we are seeing is, and this is understandable, we are seeing a, a, a large increase in shorter-term duration requests. Even if you typically, getting back to, the, to episode six, if you're a 10-year holder, you, you want to match up with a 10-year loan for the most part. That was your, your biggest opportunity to get the most accretive interest rate and execution performance of that loan. In, in today's world, that's not necessarily as true. As people are managing that interest rate, they are looking for shorter-term duration paper with the hope for lack of a better word, that in three years or five years, wherever that short duration is, we'll be in a different interest rate environment. And then you can recap at that point. Now, the you know, the, the ironic part to that strategy is that short-term borrowing rates are the same, if not more, than, than long-term fixed rate. But to that end, if you're expecting all-in coupons to be back to 4% in three years, you don't wanna lock in five, uh, 10 years at, at 6%. So I, I would say that you do have to, you always have to look at, at, at the duration of your business plan, uh, but then also take into consideration the larger macro projections, looking at the yield curve, et cetera. And you know, this, is, this is somewhat self-serving to say, but it's also very true in that to work with an intermediary who is in the market every day, is as important as ever today a lot of people look at the fees you pay to to a broker and say well yeah i don't that's not worth it i can do it myself well over the for what we do go out clear the market in addition to acting as advisors leading up to that actual execution it it, of course
0: i'm partial but i think we 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 earn our earn our fee yeah you guys definitely do i mean you're getting the best deal you're having a competitive bid situation like anyone who's bought anything where there's more than one person looking at it like you get more aggressive with whatever you're gonna pay or whatever the terms are So exactly right so how do people get in touch with you uh
1: you can feel free to send me an email uh, steve.kundert k-u-n-d-e-r-t at dot com. i'll get back to you right away and uh, whether it's to actually talk about a deal or talk about the market or hey i'm looking at this I and mean, those are you no, know, those are the conversations that, uh, that I have all day long and, and happy to do.
0: All right. Perfect. Well, yeah. Thanks for coming on. Thank Great you. Job. If you learned something from today's show, leave a review and hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy your podcast. Dive deeper into real estate investing on Brenneman Capital's website, brenneman.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Accredited investors can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Brenneman Capital LLC and its subsidiaries. Views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell
0: securities. The speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.